want to cover some introduction before we read our text today, if that's okay. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're not farther than chapter 1 yet, are we? <laughs> no, we're just starting this letter. If it's the first time you're joining our church, uh, we're beginning a new letter, fresh exposition. I've never preached the letters of First or Second Thessalonians, and so for me personally, this is a very enriching, very challenging, very um, exciting uh, opportunity that I have here. And again, just by way of introduction, I wanted to just handle some of the uh, preliminary marks on this letter by focusing on what I've always uh, sort of used just, um, I guess, pedagogically for us to know a little bit of the background of this book. And that is the alliteration that you've heard me use many times, and that's author-audience argument, okay? Author-audience argument. Those are sort of the background things that you need to know if you're going to kind of know the backdrop of any book, is who is the author, who is the audience, and what is the argument of the book or the letter? Or in this case, what is the argument of the letters? Because First and Second Thessalonians go together. Um, and so let's begin with the author. Well, the Bible says that this was written by Paul. Uh, it also says Silvanus and Timothy. And so uh, it kind of begs the question, wh- you know, what's the deal here? Well, there are three authors, but... There's plenty of evidence in the letter that Paul actually wrote the letter. He includes Silvanus uh, and Timothy simply because they were part of the ministry there uh, in Thessalonica and they had joined Paul in Corinth and that's where the letter was written. The letter was written probably somewhere around 50 or 51 AD. Scholars kind of go back and forth, but somewhere around there. And what that means is that uh, 1 Thessalonians is one of the very first letters Paul ever wrote uh, so this is very early Christianity here, especially if you take a latter date for Galatians. This is even earlier than that, maybe. Um, but uh, what's amazing to me about Paul's interaction with this church is that he was only in Thessalonica for three to four weeks. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, I had to kind of stop and pause a little bit for that. I don't know if you kind of kind of landed on you just now, but... The Apostle Paul planted a church in Thessalonica in three weeks. <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, fit that into your, you know, church planting uh, manual book or whatever, right? That, that's just incredible, which shows us, to me, it answers a lot of the questions about the book and Paul's concern for this church and why it's so important for him as he says he longs to see them again and why he needs to go back and kind of reiterate the things that he taught them because this is a very young church. Was this Paul's plan? No, of course not. The Apostle Paul did not plan to plant a church in three or four weeks. He was actually driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews who were persecuting him in Acts chapter 17. So you might want to put a finger there in Acts 17 and 18, because those are kind of crucial passages. But we know what happens. He goes to Thessalonica. He preaches among uh, the people in Thessalonica there. And then the Apostle Paul is, again, because of persecution, he's forced to leave Thessalonica, and he arrives at Berea. And you remember what happens at Berea in Acts chapter 17. It says the Bereans were more noble-minded because they received with all readiness the word of God, but they tested everything according to the scriptures. And so he labors among the Bereans, which was probably, oh, I don't know, maybe less than 100 miles away from Thessalonica. And then uh, after he is uh, found out that he had moved over to Berea, the Jews heard that Paul had fled there. And guess what they did? They followed him, actually followed him to Berea, and they persecuted him in Berea as well. And so again, the brethren thought, thought that it was, uh, it was wise for the Apostle Paul to leave Berea and then to be taken to Athens. And we know what happened at Athens. In Athens, the Apostle Paul begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection. Well, this really perks the ears of the philosophers that met at Mars Hill at the Areopagus there in Athens. And so what do they do? Well, they go and swoop the Apostle Paul up because he was at the marketplace every day sharing the gospel, probably doing a little bit of open-air preaching, maybe, right? Amen? A little bit of open-air <laughs> Doing some one-on-one witnessing. I don't know if he had Ray Comfort's gospel tracks, but he was, he was out there uh, witnessing with the marketplace. I love it. Uh, here is the dignified, honorable, inspired, powerful theologian extraordinaire Doing evangelism, one-on-one with people. Incredible. Uh, Trish and I 
think Keith went with us. We went to a seminary nearby. I won't mention it where, but went to a seminary nearby some time ago, and we actually uh, met a very famous scholar on the seminary, and my wife, more courageous than I, asked him the question, when was the last time you shared your faith? He stood back and said, boy, that's a great question. So I think you should ask that question to every faculty member on the, in this seminary. He said, I don't know. And, and he even said, I, I think we need to come down out of our ivory towers from time to time. And it was very, well, I looked at Trish like, wow, what a question, you know. But uh, the Apostle Paul was doing evangelism in Athens, and that's where he debated the Epicurean and the Stoics, you know, and they, they ended up uh, mocking him. They called him a seed picker, a babbler, you know, which is a very derogatory term back in the first century. It was very derogatory, a very vile way to describe somebody. It was just the worst kind of, uh, uh, of, a, of a slam that you could give towards a person. But what happens at Athens is that a great number of them actually believed And so people actually were persuaded by the gospel. And after he had labored in Athens, then he is once again swooped away and he's taken to Corinth. Now, when he arrives at Corinth, verses 1 through 5, there, because eventually uh, Timothy and Silvanus, which is in the book of Acts called Silas, by the way, uh, but Timothy and, and Silas arrive at Corinth and they strengthen the Apostle Paul so that, as it says in uh, for, uh, chapter uh, 8, I think it's verse 5 or 6, but it says that he, actually, um, that he actually devoted himself completely to the Word of God. Wow! I just love that. Because it shows that the Apostle Paul's priority was, it wasn't just labor, 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 but it was, I need to immerse myself in the Word of God. I mean, I think we kind of tend to forget the Apostle Paul, the entire solar system of his soul has been rocked by Jesus Christ, and he's still, and for a lifetime, trying to wrap his brain around how Christ is the Christ of the Old Testament. And so for a lifetime, we know that because even in prison towards the end of his life, what does he say there in uh, in uh, uh, Second Timothy, there at the end, he says, bring me the parchments. In other words, I need to study again. <laughs> I, love, I found a real kindred spirit there. But you see his devotion to the word of God in Corinth. And from Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes First Thessalonians. And he receives some very encouraging news about this young church. Turn to First Thessalonians Chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, just to see what Paul heard when he had stayed at Corinth. Now, remind you, in his second, this is during Paul's second missionary journey, that is the longest time Paul stayed anywhere, was uh, in Corinth. Sixteen months uh, in Corinth he stayed. And when he was there, Timothy arrived, and this is what it says, but now that Timothy has come from us, uh, come to us from you, So there you go. He was there with the Thessalonians. He says, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, that distress, that affliction, that's talking about the persecution at Thessalonica, persecution at Berea, and what happened to him at Athens until he arrived at Corinth, right? He says, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Think about it. You've been among this church for only a few weeks. You labored there. You set things in place. And then suddenly you're ripped apart from that that community, from that church. You're ripped apart from that fellowship. And can you imagine Paul's, you know, his fear, uh, his anxiety about what's going to happen there? You know, I mean, he probably thought in his mind, there's so many things out of place. I need to send Timothy. I need to send uh, Silas. They need to go and they need to strengthen the brethren. And even then, because Paul's not personally there, not that he didn't trust they would do, do a good job, but because he's not there, he's still filled with anxiety for this young, young church plant. Who knows if it's going to survive? And so here, I can't tell you the immensity of what Paul would have felt when Timothy said, They're doing good in the faith. They're persevering. Even in the midst of persecution, they are enduring. They have genuine faith. God is really among these people. Praise God. See how Paul could soar and say, we really live now because you stand 
firm. But what about this church, the Thessalonians? What about the church of the Thessalonians? Who were these people? What was Thessalonica? And why is this church so critical? Well, these Thessalonians were just, you know, they were part of a church, uh, or excuse me, of a city called Thessalonica. It was actually named after uh, Philip's half-sister, Thessalonica. Uh, excuse me, uh, Alexander the Great's half-sister, Thessalonica. Um, and the, church, and the, the city was actually filled with political pride. But it was also a city that was pluralistic in terms of its religious character. It was pagan. It was idolatrous. And you see that. Look at chapter 1, what it says there. Chapter 1, coming down to verse verse 9, he says, They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, because Thessalonica was in the region of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia also possessed Athens, and we know what Athens was like. We know that in Athens, Paul says, the city was given over to idols, and Paul became angry because of that. I like that. He was upset. He was stirred in his soul because he saw that idolatry, of course, there's an old ancient saying just in the literature of antiquity. There's an old ancient saying that says it was easier for a person to find an idol than to find a human in Athens. That's how idolatrous. I'm talking idols everywhere in the window seals, along the roads, next to memorable buildings, giant 50-foot statues to, you know, Zeus and, and, and Artemis and, 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 and all of these pagan deities. And it's everyone. They're offering up sacrifices everywhere in the city. Can you imagine? I mean, we don't walk down the street of our suburbs and see giant statues to, you know, the goddess of Google. Or do we? You know what I mean? No, there it's in the house, right? In other words, Thessalonica was much like our own time today. It was materialistic, supremely materialistic. It was vain. They were given, I mean, Corinth is in the region. Uh, you ever heard of a Corinthian culture? It was because it was lavish, luxurious, vain, and sensual. Uh, immorality was everywhere. Also this, um, Thessalonica was considered a free city, which meant that it was allowed to have local governing official, officials that made their own decisions free of the empire. Amazing. So what that resulted in is a real Thessalonican pride, a political pride. They were kind of like the Texans of the ancient world. Don't mess with Texas. You ever heard that? Well, the Thessalonians were surrounded by that kind of thing. You know, they were, they were established by, you know, powerful generals in 3rd, 4th century B.C. Um, they had this rich political and this rich cultural pride, and therefore it just added to this sort of, you know, pagan culture that they live in, this total humanism everywhere. And God takes the gospel there. And another reason why uh, the church is so crucial is because it resides right uh, south of the Ignatian Way. Uh, The Via Ignatia is an old Roman uh, road that stretched all the way to the regions of Illyricum and all the way to the east all the way into the regions as far as uh, Galatia. I mean, all the way. I mean, it's hundreds of miles of road. And that might not be impressive to you, but remember, there are no freeways back then. There are no highways. There's no toll roads. Uh, well, there was actually toll roads, but not like ours. You couldn't jump into your you know, SUV and just you know, head, head down the road. I mean, to find a road like the Via Ignatia was very difficult, and it was treacherous to travel that road. That road is actually preserved today. You can see pictures of it uh, very easily. Uh, but that road was right next to Thessalonica. And so Paul could jump on that road and zigzag between all the churches. <laughs> you know, it was like the missionary superhighway. It was wonderful. It gave him access to Illyricum. And Paul actually says in Romans that he preached the gospel as far as Illyricum, all the way. So if you have a map, you can actually see it. It's all the way to the west, all the way to those far distant regions. See, this is all, always Paul's heart. Paul's heart was always to preach the gospel where the gospel had not gone. 
That was his calling. That's what God called him to do in Acts chapter 9. Right? He was a pioneer missionary of the first order. His ultimate ambition was even to go to further than Rome, to go to Spain and to preach the gospel where Christ was not even named. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, because I think it's important for us just to see the founding of this church, the founding uh, of this church. Acts chapter 17, and to see just kind of what happened uh, to this church. Who is the audience? Well, We're told right here in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there were a synagogue of Jews. That's always critical, important, not only to Luke, the author, but even more importantly to to Paul, the apostle. Why? Because according to Paul's custom, he went to them, meaning he went to them first. That was always Paul's custom. Go to a city, find the synagogue, and preach their Messiah to them first. Because Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And so Paul always wanted the Jews to have the opportunity to hear the gospel first. Isn't that amazing? And with them from the scriptures. Now what scriptures is that, brothers and sisters? Well, it's not the letter of Thessalonica, of Thessalonians that has been written yet. <laughs> so it must be the Old Testament, right? So he reasoned with them from the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence that Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Isn't that amazing? We talked about this so much in our Sunday school classes that the, 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 the gospel of both testaments is focused supremely upon the dual estates of Christ, his dying and rising again. And that is the focus. And says, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, who is Silvanus, along with a larger number of God-fearing Greeks. These were people who feared the Jewish God, but never came into full faith until the gospel completed their faith. And a number of the leading women of the town, apparently, and of the Jewish synagogue. But the Jews, that's the Jews broadly or generally in that area, he says the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men, in other words, some shady characters, some mercenaries that they drugged up somewhere from the back alleys of Thessalonica, apparently. They grabbed these mercenary men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. Wow. Kind of sounds like UNT. <clears throat> Personal testimony there. And attacking the house of Jason. Wow. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now think about that. Paul's missionary endeavors had led all of that to your house. That'll really test your faithfulness to the gospel. This is, happens everywhere all the time, brothers and sisters in the mission field, all over the third world. This is common, common, commonplace. I think people in third world countries and persecuted nations read this passage and go, oh yeah, I mean, that just happened the other day. I mean, it's just that easy for them to identify with what we have a hard time identifying with. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren of the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Now look at what that says there. It really, the reputation that the early Christians had in the, in, in the first century, they are those who have upset the world or literally turned the world upside down. Wow. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, to which we say, Amen. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Keep reading. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. By night, meaning they had to flee. And that's what's going on in the church of the Thessalonians. There's so much more that could be said just about that. But what about the overarching argument of the letter? What is 1 Thessalonians and then, of course, 2 Thessalonians? What is that? What is the letter all about? What is the chief argument? I would say that's threefold. Number one, the Apostle Paul repeatedly expresses concern about his reputation among them. As a matter of fact, all the way from chapter 2, 
uh, verse 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is concerned about his reputation among the church. He wanted to make sure they understood his reasons uh, for not coming to them sooner and why he had traveled away from them rather than towards them. Those kinds of things. He wants to make sure that his reputation is upstanding with that church. He does the same thing in many other letters like 2 Corinthians, constantly telling the church that he had good and honest reasons why uh, he um, he was not what does it say there in first uh, second Corinthians chapter uh, uh, one uh, I think it's verse seventeen that he was not vacillating in other words he wasn't flip flopping uh, on them he actually was hindered many times and he really couldn't come I mean think about it guys this is your pastor this is this is the apostle Paul who until a pastor had been appointed there he is their pastor and he's telling them I can't come and here's why. And you're just wondering, where is Pastor Emilio? Why don't, won't he come back? You know, it's like that. Only better because he was obviously a better pastor than I am. <laughs> and inspired too. So the other reason why he wrote this letter is to correct some of their views on eschatology. Whatever happened in Thessalonians, boy, they latched on to eschatology. Uh, whatever they heard, whatever he taught, whatever somebody in the church had influenced the church with, for whatever reason, eschatology became a big deal. And the problem, though, is that that led to certain misunderstandings about eschatology. You see this in chapter 4, verse 13. They're concerned chiefly with what happens to believers who die in the Lord. Where did they go, Right? And so he is there to correct them, to show them that, look, those who die in the Lord, they're okay. They're going to be fine. They will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain at his coming, we will rise with them and gather together with them in the clouds, etc., etc. The other thing then was that there was a misunderstanding as to the nature of the day of the Lord. This phrase, the day of the Lord, obviously goes all the way back to the Old Testament, places like Joel and uh, you know, all throughout the prophets. The day of the Lord is, is sort of that eschatological day where God will come and rend the heavens, right? And so what was being uh, sort of circulated around the church was that the day of the Lord had already arrived. It had already come. They missed it in a sense, right? I mean, think about that. It's not just realized eschatology. It was full-blown preterism. It was... Everything has happened already. What? We missed it. Where did it go? (laughs) Oh, no, no. And so who can tell what the elaborate arguments were that were foisted upon this church to get them convinced and fearing that they had missed the day of the Lord? And so he writes to them saying, no, no, no. A couple of things need to happen before that happens. Number one, a great apostasy. Number two, a revelation of the man of sin, the Antichrist. Those things have to happen first before the awful and terrible day of the Lord will come in completion. Um, the third thing was the importance of the parousia. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians again. I want to just show you this quickly, okay? Look at, uh, you're going to fly through the letter with me. Look at uh, the end of every chapter, right? Verse 10, we wait for the Son from heaven, His Son from heaven, Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. In other words... Every chapter ends with the second coming. The parousia is, you know, at the top of the agenda for the Apostle Paul. 
to get them to have this eschatological worldview where they anticipate with hope the second coming of Jesus Christ, the bodily return of Jesus to the earth. That's what's going on. I would say not only Paul's concern for his reputation, not only to correct whatever eschatology went wrong, but then third of all, to establish them in the faith. Turn to chapter 3 again. Chapter 3, after Timothy brings word that they are doing well, he says in verse 8, they will really live if, he says, if they stand firm in the faith. Look at verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Here's the purpose clause. And that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. I love it. Because what this means is that they need additional discipleship. And so do we. They need additional growth. And so do we. They need to grow theologically. And so do we. They need to grow doctrinally. And so do we. They need to understand more and more about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And so do you. And so do I. We never stop needing discipleship. Ever. And so this book is very, very instrumental for us in that because we will find in this book more reasons why uh, to hold fast the mystery of the faith. And so I hope that this will serve the dual purpose of seeing what they went through, but more than that, just our own discipleship, our own edification as we learn what Thessalonians has to teach. Okay, that was introduction. Ready for the sermon? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and do me a favor. Would you stand with me one more time? I thought, well, I'm going to unleash another round on the church today, and so a good stretch break. You'd probably appreciate it. But we start off the right way. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Pray one more time. Heavenly Father, in your omniscient wisdom, you preserved these letters written by a, an individual like Paul or whether it be Peter or one of the Gospels. You preserved the letters you preserve the, your word, your revelation. You inscripturated these things, not because they were written to us, but they were written for us, for our benefit. And so, God, as we look at this monumental work of the Apostle Paul and these beautiful, glorious little epistles, may our faith be enriched, may we be challenged, may we grow in accordance to what your word teaches, and may we have a heart to obey, O God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to cover this opening salutation by the Apostle Paul under three apostolic headings. Number one, the apostolic company. Number two, the apostolic church. And number three, the apostolic greeting, because that's what we have here. First, is the apostolic company. And you see, in many of Paul's letters, you have a very simple letter formula. You have a sender, you have a recipient, and you have a greeting. That's what you have here. You've got a sender, a recipient, and a greeting. Now, what's different is that here, there are three senders, right? There's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And like I said later on in the letter, the letter will actually give evidence that the Apostle Paul himself is the one writing Okay, but he, he includes the apostolic company, as I'm calling them, uh, Silvanus and Timothy, because they are with him in Corinth, and they've been laboring with him. They've been going back and forth, laboring between the Macedonian churches and the Apostle Paul concerning all of these things. And so they have been networking with Paul as fellow workers. That's why they are co-senders with him. And so as we, if we focus for a moment 
on Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, we are reminded why these messengers, why these co-laborers, why these co-workers of the Apostle Paul are so important to Paul. What makes them valuable, useful for the Apostle Paul? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I can think of no better place to see what makes a man fit for uh, apostolic ministry, and I would say even by extension, what makes a man fit for pastoral ministry that is so uh, closely connected to the apostolic office, not because they're the same, but because there's a transition in Scripture between the two. But in Philippians chapter 2, we see what kind of men uh, Timothy and Silvanus were. You guys know this verse. I've quoted it a hundred times. It's one of my favorite verses whenever I speak about men who are valuable, useful for ministry. Paul says in verse 19 of Philippians 2, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. See, the kind of same situation you had in Thessalonians. And he says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's what made Silvanus and Timothy such godly, useful men in the gospel, that their vision was for the health of the church. It was not for their fame. It was not for their influence. It was not for their own uh, gifts to be used as much as it was for the church to be edified. That's the goal. He says, for they all seek after their own interest. When he says, for they all seek after their own interest, there the Apostle Paul is speaking about other men, other people in the church, maybe others who would want to serve but are not qualified to serve because other people, above everything, have interest in themselves. They are not like Paul, ready to die on behalf of the church. And I don't say that metaphorically. I say that literally ready to lay it all down if that's what it takes for the founding of these churches. Isn't this immense? Just the gravity of this. Isn't this this, uh, just weighty what's being said here? Uh, These men were this kind of kindred spirit, of a sacrificial kind, of a selfless kind, he says. But you know, verse 22, you know of Timothy's proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And those men are not readily available. Lord willing, in November, I will be going and speaking at a conference for our brother Joseph in Mexico. Um, And uh, I've been invited to go and to preach on something. And uh, I just reminded of Joseph that after, I mean, how many years has Brother Joseph been there now? I think seven, eight years in Mexico, Mexico laboring. And all he has, I don't say all, praise God what he has, but he has only a few good men, to quote, you know, pardon the pun, but he only has a few guys that he can genuinely trust to preach, to teach, to labor, to disciple to be used in ministry, to be entrusted, to be confided on. There's just a a handful. And and that's the way it was then, and that's the way it is now. And uh, so Paul's companions here, what we could say is that these men were highly qualified men. They were selected very carefully in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, you find these sort of characteristics because the church there carefully selects men like Timothy and Silvanus to go with the apostle after they were, I think, examined, after they were looked at. I think they were, they were watched for a time. They were tested, and they passed the test, and therefore they were used. These were trustworthy men. In the New Testament, these men were considered uh, to be very, very valuable co-laborers, the apostle Paul. They were in Acts. They were called prophets, Uh, They were called pastors, evangelists, apostles. Now, we should be careful, though. Let me make a distinction because I think we need to be careful to distinguish between these gifts and offices. Being gifted with evangelism does not mean that you hold the office in the church of an evangelist. I take that to be a gift, not an office. Furthermore, just because you're an evangelist or you have a gift of evangelism or just because you are a pastor, that does not mean that you are a, a prophet, or an apostle. Uh, I personally shriek at the idea of using the word apostle today. Some ministers go that way. I know good men that would want to still use the word apostle. Um, 
going back to Brother Joseph in Mexico, he said that would wreak havoc on the mission field if people were going around calling themselves apostles. It just wouldn't work. Um, I think what's happening today is really the hijacking of all these gifts and offices, really the way that, um, you know, we're, we're in a very small minority here in the West. I hope you really understand that the majority of the Christian church now is both Asian and African, and it is existing today in Latin America primarily. We are way outnumbered in the West. I mean, it's not even close the millions and millions of Christians that are scattered around the globe that do not belong to America and do not belong to Western Europe. Uh, it, times have changed. There are possibly more Christians in China right now than in America. Let that sink in. God is on the move, folks. But what's going on around the Pentecostal world is an abuse of these terms, apostle, prophet, evangelist. They believe in what's known as the fivefold ministry, that anyone, anyone, any believer can have the office today of either an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, etc., etc. Even women. And what their argument is is that because in the book of Acts, and this is something that goes along with continuationist hermeneutics, is that just because Philip had daughters who were themselves prophetesses, that they therefore qualify to be pastors. Because if you were a prophet, uh, you know, in the, old, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas are called not only apostles, but prophets. So what they would say is if you held the office of a prophet, you, were also, you also held the office of an apostle. That was a possibility. You could do that. And so these things were fluid and readily available to anyone and they go all the way to the point where they think that because there were women prophets in the book of Acts, that means there must be not only women prophets today, but women apostles and also women pastors. It's not a coincidence that egalitarianism is rampant in Pentecostal circles. I mean, the Assemblies of God denomination is filled with women pastors because they have these uh, uh, continuationist hermeneutics. I believe that's part of the problem. But... Just because these people were called this, that doesn't mean that we will be. I think in the book of Ephesians, you see a clear transition from the fact that there are foundational prophets, foundational apostles, to what seems to continue today in pastors and teachers and those who have the gift of evangelism. I mean, I would say my wife has the gift of evangelism, but she does not hold an office of an evangelist in the church. I think that would be... A false ecclesiology. So much to study here, right, guys? Uh, you thought it was only one verse. No, I think the New Testament age was unique, the most unique stage of all of redemptive history, never to be repeated again. And that has so many implications for a lot of things. But um, even though they assisted uh, the Apostle Paul, and they were fellow workers of the Apostle Paul, Paul's calling was also unique. It was supernatural, and it left an indelible mark on the history of the church and really on the history of mankind. Listen to what one author says about the Apostle Paul. He says, Paul is one of the most perpetually significant men who have ever lived. Without the spiritual earthquake that he brought about, Christianity would probably never have survived at all. Yet his importance also extends very widely beyond the right outside the religious field, for he is also exercised in gigantic influence from generation to generation on non-religious events and ways of thinking, politics, sociology, war, philosophy, and that whole intangible area which the thought process of successive epochs became formed. Now listen to this. He has to be considered, therefore, not only a religious figure of exceptional power, but also of the outs outstanding makers of the history of mankind. And Gerhardus Voss echoes that sentiment, though from a more orthodox uh, tradition. He says, The genius of the greatest constructive mind ever to work on the data of Christianity. Wow. If you just want a tremendous uh, a book uh, on, on the Apostle Paul, uh, his labors and his theology. You need to get Robert Raymond's book, uh, Paul the Apostle, or Paul, Missionary Theologian by, the Apostle, uh, by Robert Raymond. I think it is the best. 
He was a true missionary theologian. Okay, let's transition just from the apostolic company to the apostolic church. Remember, this church was founded based on a prophetic vision that God gave to Ananias about the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, God said to Ananias, Go, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's right. This suffering is also documented in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, where the Apostle Paul himself is saying autobiographically of himself, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth that I may make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul was called to suffer on behalf of the church. He says in Philippians 2, he was poured out like a drink offering on the service of the church. In the midst of all those sufferings, the Thessalonian church was Paul's heart. It was his joy, his crown. First Thessalonians 2.19, look what he says. For he says, who is our hope? Who is our joy? Who is our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? See, the apostle Paul was a churchman. Uh, he had a church-focused Christianity. Uh, he could not conceive of the Christian life outside of the church without being connected to the local church. Again, it's staggering. Here's the Apostle Paul on house arrest writing the book of Philippians. And in, with, with Philippians, he's in jail. And he's still talking about receipts that he might have turned in to the Philippian church because of their financial gifts. Wow. You're in jail, Paul. Relax. Let somebody else take care of the finances, huh? No, no, no. Uh, the Apostle Paul just saw that he was indebted to the church. He was bound to the church. He was, he was connected to the church. And he didn't do anything outside of that world view. So much to say here. Um, boy, let me, let me move on lastly to the apostolic greeting because I, I, I fear that my time is fading the apostolic greeting is found right there at the end of the verse where it says, Grace to you and peace. We would be foolish to run hastily over these terms for a number of reasons. Ancient letter writing has shown that this was something like what you would find in an ancient letter. Somebody saying to someone, Greetings, peace. And as a matter of fact, the most common way to greet somebody in the ancient world was, ancient world was with the word karain, which means greetings. Literally, joy, right? Or rejoice, right? Well, the Apostle Paul uses a very similar formula, but he changes it to the Christian grace. From greeting to grace. It's, it's a beautiful, masterful stroke of the pen because he doesn't just say grace, but he also says grace and peace. Because outside of the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, the customary greeting was shalom. And so he says, grace and shalom. And so what he does with one stroke of the pen is that he, uh, he, he surpasses the Greco-Roman world and their greeting. And he also, he fulfills the true meaning of shalom, which is what? The shalom that comes from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know greeting. We don't know joy. We don't know grace without Jesus Christ. We don't know peace without Jesus Christ. And therefore, what Paul does here is he Christianizes both of these terms so that they have to be used, if they're going to be used rightly, from this Christian world view. Grace and peace, brothers and sisters, that is the essence of our faith. With that very short little reading, the Apostle Paul summarizes everything about our religion. Our religion is built on grace. Amen? We are saved by grace. We are justified by grace. We are chosen by grace. Ephesians chapter 1 
Verses 3 to 6, we are elect, predestined, adopted to the praise of, the, of His glory. It's all God's glory because it's God's grace that is the foundational motive for our redemption. It is also the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, turn with me quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Grace is not just what conceives our redemption. Grace is not just what executes our redemption. Grace is also what will consummate our redemption. And there will be at the parousia, talk about Thessalonians, the second coming, there will be one final deposit of grace unleashed upon your life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely. Listen to that language, folks. It's non-negotiable for us. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that? Where is your hope at? It better not be my hope resides in my circumstances changing. My hope resides in my health changing. My hope resides in my marriage improving. My hope resides in my children getting saved. My hope resides in my finding a good church. My hope resides in my building a big church. My hope resides only on the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope should truly, fully, ultimately reside. Grace upon grace. But lastly, the other Christian grace is peace. Our religion is a religion of peace. Now you understand the theology that Scripture teaches us about peace. When someone tells you peace, what do you think of? Do you think of the absence of war? Do you think of the absence of hostility? Do you think of the experience of tranquility? Do you think of calmness? Do you think of what? What do you, what comes to mind when someone tells you peace? Well, thankfully, we don't have to choose. It's all the above. It is the peace of reconciliation. It is the peace that comes from justification that reconciles us to God so that there's peace with God, Romans 5. But it's also the peace that is experienced on a daily basis. The peace of God, as Paul says, that surpasses all understanding. In other words, it's an existential peace. It's an experiential peace. It's an experimental peace that we can have daily in our lives when our hope is in the right place, when our perspective is eternal, when our communion with God is vital and real and thriving then we can have the peace of God, not because God took us out of the storm, but because He quiets the storm when we're in the storm. Because He quiets us in the midst of our trials. As Jesus said, Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world Gives. We had better become very skilled at distinguishing between the peace that my neighbor has, who seems to have a lot of peace. Everything seems to go right. It's a great house. Seems to have a great marriage. Very nice kids. Everything looks good on the outside. Every time I see him out, when I go take the trash out, seems very peaceful. His lawn's always taken care of. Lots of peace. Not as the world has does Jesus give. No, no, no. Our peace is to be a spiritual peace. Our peace is explicitly rooted in our union with Jesus Christ. It's a distinct Christian peace. And we should revel in that peace. We should revel in the fact that we have a peace you don't have. You know, we should, we should take advantage of the peace of God So that we understand that we have something you don't have because despite all of the appearances of peace in your life, the reality is is that you are in a crisis, my friend. The reality is, is that you are in the most terrible dilemma that you could ever be in because you're in your sin. And this is just masking what is really going on. 
Oh, so much I could say about that. But I'm sure I've preached over an hour. And I want to be sensitive to you all. But peace also suggests that our redemption is not just a legal forensic issue. Our peace is religious. It's not just that you are legally declared righteous in the sight of God. Oh, you are. But what for? So that you can have peace with God. So that you can have shalom, which was an expression of friendship. So that you can have communion with Him. So that you can tabernacle with God. So that you can dwell in a tent with God and have a meal together. It's not, what do you expect? You're going to walk into the tabernacle and what do you expect? God's going to be there with a gavel? Jesus Christ is going to be our brother, our elder brother, as some would say. He is our, he is our kinsman redeemer. He is one of us. He died for his brethren. He will be in our midst and we will have communion with him. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, this peace that I'm talking about is not, some of you, tell me if you identify with this, it is not based on the roller coaster of our emotions or the fluctuation of our circumstances. It is a transcendental peace that is constant if we have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Amen? Isaiah 26, verse 3, reminds us that the peace of God, especially the experiential, practical, daily peace, is experienced best when it is met by faith. The steadfast in mind you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. See that? Trust in the Lord forever. Heritage grace. For in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Trust in that rock and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will fill your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, If we confess and if we're honest, we are often devoid of that peace. Monday through Saturday, sometimes our lives look chaotic, devoid of peace, not a moment of tranquility, not a moment where we can be still and know that you are God. And yet, Lord, you've given us your peace. Your son, Jesus, has granted us that peace. And because you have justified us by your grace, we have positional peace with God. You are, as the scriptures declare, the God of peace. And therefore, there could be nothing greater that the Apostle Paul could have prayed for this church, but that they would be immersed, that they would be characterized, that they would be identified with the grace and peace of Almighty God. Nothing better. There is no higher virtue. There is no better characteristic. There is no more more choice and precious experience than the experience of your grace and your peace among us. And so we pray that by your Spirit and for your glory, you would grant us more grace in this year. That you would grant us more to know your peace and to know that you are God. We pray that you would use this letter to that end. In Jesus' name. Amen.